0: You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. I want to tell you a story. Uh, There's a famous legend about the king of India from from many centuries ago, and the king of India had this famous uh, advisor who had, uh, as the legend has it, um, had invented the game of chess. And the king of India loved the game of chess. He, he thought it was the best game ever, just loved to play it. And so he wanted to reward his advisor for inventing chess. And so he brought his advisor in and he said, hey, anything you want, you name it, anything in the kingdom is yours. And again, as, leg- as legend has it, the advisor did not ask for money. He did not ask for power. Uh, but this was his request. Uh, I would like uh, a grain of wheat multiplied and compounded for every square on the chessboard. And so basically what he was asking for was one grain of wheat on the first square, two grains of wheat on the second square, four grains on the third square, eight grains on the fourth square, 16, uh, 32, and so on. And the king's like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, this guy is just a fool. I'm offering any reward in my kingdom, and he's asking for some some wheat. And uh, he was kind of insulted because he had great wealth. He had tons of grain. He's the king of India. He's insulted by this guy's request. But he's like, all right, whatever. So he brings in some servants with a bag of wheat and, and they start uh, to put the wheat on the chessboard. And it goes well for a little bit until the king starts to realize what the trend is going to be. And he starts doing the math in his head. And he realize, realizes that by the time he gets to the 32nd square uh, of the chessboard, uh, it's going to require more than 4 billion grains of wheat uh, to, com- to complete the request. So the advisor was not foolish at all. He was actually quite wise. He had requested not only all the grain in India, he'd requested all the grain in the entire world, and it was wealth that no person, uh, no one could fulfill that request. That's just simple math, right? In third grade, I think it is, we learn multiplication. Uh, But the results of that simple math sometimes take us by surprise, like it did the king. Multiplication is incredibly simple, but it's also incredibly powerful. We've been, as a church, this summer looking at Genesis chapters 1 through 11, primarily because those chapters are foundational to our understanding of of the entire Bible. Uh, You could say that Genesis chapter 1 through 11 is like the acorn, and the rest of human history is the oak tree. All of the DNA For the story to which we've been called into, the gospel story, is found in Genesis chapter 1 through 11. Creation, fall, redemption, recreation. It's all there, and it begins to unfold in the rest of the Bible and in our lives. In Genesis chapter 1, you know God creates man and woman in his own image, and he blesses them, and then he gives them a command. You know what the first command is that he gives them? Multiply. Multiply. And fill the earth. From the very beginning, God's intention, his purpose, was to establish and to extend his kingdom on earth, to fill the earth with image bearers of the king. That's what a king does. If you read about kings in the ancient Near East, you you see that they would often place images of themselves all over their territory. They couldn't be everywhere at once, and so kings would often. They would put up monuments or statues or or pictures of themselves, and those images of the king would say to all who saw them, This is part of the king's territory. And that's what God was doing. The problem in Genesis chapter 1 is that there's only two image bearers, and so they were going to have to multiply uh, if they were going to fill the earth with the image of the king. You know how the story goes. The man and the woman go their own way. They reject the kingship of God. They want to be their own gods and run their own show, and they go their own way. And so as humanity multiplies on earth, sin, because sin enters through Adam and Eve, sin also multiplies on earth. And so you get to Genesis chapter 6, and this is what it says. It says, The wickedness of mankind was great on earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. All evil, all the time. And so instead of the earth being filled with God-worshippers, worshipers of the king, the earth, according to Genesis chapter 6, is filled with violence. It's a tragic story. So in judgment, God brings the flood upon the earth, but in grace we know that he saves Noah and his family through the ark. We've talked about this story for the last couple of weeks. And after a number of days, the flood subsides and Noah and his family come off the ark. And I don't know if you've ever thought about what that moment must have been like for Noah's family. What are they thinking? What are they feeling at that moment as they come off the ark into a world that seems like a new world? It's the same world, but it's different. It's drastically changed. And I imagine they're thinking, who is this God with whom we're dealing? God who can create life, God who can take away life? God who can save life? How are we supposed to relate to an awesome God like this? And so they get off the ark, and the first thing that Noah does is he builds an altar so that they might worship God. And this is a good decision from Noah, because human beings are created to worship God. Our humanity is, I would say, best expressed. Our humanity is best experienced. When we find our, our true worth in our creator. And so God wants his people to worship him, not just because he's pleased by it, but because it's the best thing for them. And that's what Noah does. He worships. Uh, but then the question arises after he worships, what next? I mean, what do you have for us, God? What's your purpose for us? What's your plan for us, your people? And so you come to Genesis chapter 9, if you want to look there for a second. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. Through 7, this was just read to us. I just, I'll just read verse 1 and 7 here. God blesses Noah and his sons, and he says to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. It's the same thing he said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And then in chapter, in verse 7 of chapter 9, he says, And you, Noah, be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth, and multiply in it. So three times in seven verses he tells Noah uh, to multiply. In between, there he reminds them that human life is the pinnacle of creation because humans are created in the image of God. But I want us just to focus on this this idea of multiplication a little bit uh, this afternoon because it's a theme that runs through the entire Bible uh, and and it very much impacts our story. Multiplication is one of those DNA things that we see in Genesis one through eleven uh, that that carries through the rest of the scriptures. So after the flood. Uh, God, you know, I don't know what God's options were at that point. Uh, One option would be to maybe to start over, to speak into existence some sort of new superhuman race that doesn't mess up, that doesn't sin, that doesn't screw things up, that worships perfectly. Uh, Or he could stick with, uh, another option would be just to stick with the original plan. Multiply uh, image bearers through the family of one man, and raise up God-worshippers through this painstaking process of living life in a fallen world. This plan is way messier. It's way less efficient than if you just started over. Uh, But this is the plan that God goes with. God says to Noah, Noah, you and your family multiply a new humanity. Fill the earth. And so here's what I want want you to catch today. God is fiercely committed to multiplying God-worshippers on earth, and, he, and he's going to do it through his people. There's no plan B. God is fiercely committed to multiplying God-worshippers on earth, and he will do it through his people. And so I want to do a couple things. I want to, take, I want to quickly look at a macro view of, of multiplication. In other words, what's God's perspective uh, on multiplication? And then I want us to look at more of a micro view. In other words, how does it affect us in our daily life, this theme or this idea of multiplication, okay? Uh, Let's take a second and look at a macro view of multiplication. I want you to see that there is a a biblical thread of God's relentless pursuit to multiply God-worshippers on the earth, okay? It's a thread that runs through the entire biblical story, and I want to just read some scripture, and I want you to feel the weight of it because I want you to see uh, that it's there, and I'm using this term, God-worshippers, uh, very intentionally. Uh, when God tells Noah to be fruitful and multiply, uh, on the one hand, he just means have some kids. Have some grandkids, great-grandkids. Have, you know, populate the earth. Uh, on the other hand, I don't think God is just interested in populating the earth with human beings who end up just kind of turning their back on him, giving him the stiff arm. Uh, he's, we've already tried that in the first six chapters of Genesis. It did not go so well, ended in a flood. And so God, I think, in saying be fruitful and multiply, is committed to multiplying God worshipers, people who find their worth in God. And for that to happen, it's going to take more than just the man and the woman procreating. It's, it's more than just having kids. It's going to take teaching. It's going to take discipleship. It's going to take passing on the faith. It's going to take living the faith, walking by faith to cultivate God-worshippers. I want you to just feel the weight of it in Scripture. Listen to these, these uh, as I read here. The first major character in the story after Noah is Abraham. And God says this to Abraham in Genesis 17. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I, make my, I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. You'll be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So God's purpose is to take one man and multiply his descendants uh, uh, over the entire earth. So that was his purpose with Adam, that's his purpose with Noah, and now with Abraham. In multiplication, it starts small, but it has something very big in mind. Listen to what God says to Isaac, who is Abraham's son in Genesis 26. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. You see God's commitment to the whole earth. One man, whole earth, in mind. God speaks to Jacob who's Isaac's son or Abraham's grandson. In Genesis 35, God says to him, No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your body. So God's consistent with his promise. He's going to multiply through this particular family, Jacob's family. After Jacob, we find uh, Israel or Jacob's family in the country of Egypt which is a pagan land. And in Egypt, they are discriminated against. Uh, they, are, uh, they are outcasts. They are oppressed. And eventually, they are enslaved there. But in Exodus chapter 1, it says this, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied. And they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. God's purpose was to multiply his people even in the face of great discrimination and oppression. And uh, when, I, when I think about that, I think, you know, sometimes as Christians in America, uh, we think the culture is against us sometimes, don't we? And we kind of get all mopey and down about it, and we think, well, the only people that you can still make fun of anymore are Christians, and we kind of get this defensive posture about that, and we take matters into our own hands because we feel like the culture is against us. And let me just say this, the culture is not against us like it was Israel and Egypt, because we have not yet been enslaved for that which we believe. God is committed to multiplying His people, and He does not need comfortable circumstances, by the way, for His people in order to do so. In fact, oftentimes God multiplies his people when it 's really uncomfortable for them. Look at the church in China it 's exploding, and yet they are, they are greatly oppressed for what they believe. god 's committed to multiplying God worshippers. Israel, centuries later, finds itself in Babylon, a pagan land. They'd been disobedient. God hauls them off to to Babylon, and uh, they're in exile there. And through the prophet Jeremiah, God says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent in exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, multiply there, in the pagan land, multiply there. Don't decrease. He promises to Israel about the future. In Ezekiel 37, he says, I will set them in their land and I will multiply them. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God. They shall be my people. And then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. Why will God multiply his people? So that the nations will know who God is. He multiplies his people so that his name would be great. Not their name, his name. We come to the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God, and he's he's talking about how the kingdom of God tends to multiply. And he teaches these parables, and he says, you know, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. You know, it's like the smallest seed you can imagine, but when it grows, it becomes the largest seed or largest plant in the entire garden. And he says, you know, the kingdom of God is like leaven or yeast. just You can't even hardly see it. But it begins to work itself through a lump of dough. And then it, it multiplies and it leavens the whole lump of dough. That's what the kingdom of God is like. And he says to his disciples, hey, guys, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you for a reason. You know what the reason was? That you would go and bear fruit. Fruit that would remain. In other words, be fruitful, guys. Disciples. Multiply. Through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, a new humanity is formed. A new community of god worshipers, the church, uh, is like something the world has never seen before. Because in the church, you have Jews and Gentiles coming together as one, as God-worshippers. And you know what God does through this community? Acts chapter 6, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 9, so the church throughout all Judea and, and, and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. And then you come to the very end of the Bible, Revelation It's talking about the future. It hasn't even happened in our lifetime yet. It's a vision of the future. Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Why? Because they're worshiping clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Isn't that great? It's a multitude in the future, a multitude of God-worshippers, because God is fiercely committed to multiplying God-worshippers all over the earth, and he's committed to doing it through his people. There's no plan B. Did it through Noah? Through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, his people, and he's going to do it through you and me. Now, this is where we get micro about multiplication. This is where it begins to get personal and affect you and me. And so, let's take a little bit of a micro view uh, of multiplication. Um, what is our role? Like, what are we supposed to do about this? Uh, if God is going to do it and through his people, what's our role in God's plan? Now, I think it would be better to show you uh, first uh, rather than tell you. And so what I would like to do is just show you how multiplication has sort of played out in one way in my life. And I want to show you kind of a family photo album of sorts. And uh, it's really personal to me, and these men that I'm going to show you are really personal to me. And I just, wanna, I just want you to catch it and see it in the lives of real people. So hopefully, uh, th- this is John Mitchell. Uh, John Mitchell, Dr. Mitchell, uh, was born in 1892 and he died in 1990. Uh, John Mitchell uh, was the founder of Multnomah School of the Bible in uh, Portland, Oregon in 1936. And uh, he taught uh, men and women uh, the scriptures and the love of the scriptures uh, almost to the day he died, well into his 90s. And uh, he used to... Uh, teach uh, folks that when you study a book of the Bible, like if you're studying the book of Colossians, he would tell them, hey, read a book 50 times before you start studying the book because you need to saturate the mind with your text. He loved the word of God and he wanted people to catch a love for the word of God but primarily because the word of God reveals Jesus Christ and he loved Jesus Christ. This is uh, his, comp- his uh, devotional on the book of Romans and he says this about the word of God. He says, whatever our gift may be, we need to saturate our minds with the word of God so that we'll be available and usable in the hands of the Holy Spirit. He says, why the truth must live in us. He was, uh, one of his students was going off to be a missionary in China, and he said, Dr. Mitchell, do you have a word for me and a word for China? And Dr. Mitchell said to him, here's what I'm going to tell you. Sit at the feet of Jesus and tell the world what you see. And that's what he did with his life. He would sit at the feet of Jesus and God's word, and he would tell people what he saw. Uh, One of the men that he influenced and began to teach about Jesus and about how to study the word of God was a guy named Scott Gilchrist. Here's Scott and his wife. Scott uh, is the pastor of Southwest Bible Church in Portland, Oregon. He has been for over 30 years there. But he learned to to study the word of God and teach the word of God through the influence of Dr. Uh, John Mitchell. When Scott was a student at Portland State University in 1972, uh, he met another student and he shared the gospel with this other student one day. And this other student became a Christian. And this other student was named Bob Monaco. And here's Bob and his wife Cass. Some of you uh, know them. And uh, Bob um, became a Christian with Scott. But Dr. Mitchell and Scott began to teach Bob how to read the Bible. And Bob fell in love with the scriptures and he fell in love with um, the Christ, the Jesus that is revealed in the Scriptures, and he be- and he became this amazing discipler of men. And he would pursue guys and get to know them and teach them to love the Word of God and the Christ that is revealed in the Word of God. Now, I met Bob uh, my junior year at the University of Texas, and uh, I was kind of freaked out by him because he was just—he had this big old black mustache. You can't really tell there; it's gray now, but. Uh, um, and he just kind of had this, he was real quirky and always had a little smirk on his face, but, uh, I knew that there was something about this man and Bob invited me to be in a Bible study with uh, some other young guys. And I said, yes. And so i joined this Bible study and we were studying the book of John that semester. And Bob said to us, all right, guys, the beginning of the semester, I want you to read the book of John 50 times this semester. And we were like, <laughs> are you kidding me? It's like 21 chapters in the book of John i got other classes that I'm taking at UT. And, uh, and he was like, no, just, just try it. And so I decided to try it, and I started reading the book of John. And uh, I don't know if I made it to 50, but I got close. Halfway through the semester, uh, Bob and I were at this bagel shop having coffee and, um, and bagels, and um, we would meet weekly and talk about life and scriptures and ministry and whatever. And uh, Bob took out a napkin, and he drew on the napkin a box with 21 smaller boxes in it, and he said, all right, I want you to start filling in the boxes, just one or two, wor- two, three words about each chapter of the book of John. And so I started filling it in. You know, the you know, first box, I wrote, like, the word became fleshed. The second box, it was a wedding in Cana. Third box, Nicodemus. Fourth box, woman at the well, on and on. You know, John 6, uh, Jesus is the bread of life. He feeds the 5,000. John 9, the blind man. John 11, uh, the res- uh, Lazarus and the resurrection of the life, and I did it all. I filled in all twenty-one boxes, and I was so blown away because I was like, "Man, I like, I kind of know the Book of John, <laughs> you know." And I thought I was just a young guy, but I thought if I can know one book of the Bible, I could. There's a way up that I could learn the other sixty-five somehow. And I fell in love with the Word of God, but more importantly, with Christ who is revealed in the Word of God. And I wanted to pass that on the way that Bob had to me. I went into campus ministry, and a couple years after I graduated from college, one of the first students I met with was a guy named Mark Robinson. Uh, this is Mark and his wife Kimberly, his son Josh. And I uh, met Mark his freshman year. He was a student at the University of Oklahoma. He was an uh, uh, influencer on campus and in his fraternity. And he jumped into a Bible study that I was leading. And uh, we were studying 2 Peter. And I told the guys, hey, I want you to read 2 Peter like 50 times, right, this semester. And they're like, what? Come on, man. That's like, I like three chapters in Second Peter. Uh, but, they, but they decided to do it. And, uh, you know, you're getting increasingly weak, right? Um, uh, by the way, uh, those of you who are friends with Bob Thune, Bob Thune was, was in this, this same Bible study with Mark Robinson, their peers at, at OU together, and... Uh, Thune memorized Second Peter that semester. That, you know, that's how committed he is. Uh, but anyway, um, but Mark um, fell in love with the word of God and the Jesus who's revealed in the word of God. And he is one of the most humble, gentle uh, people I know. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, he, uh, he and his wife, Kimberly, have uh, walked by faith in the same community for years. And she has a number of health problems. She had a, a kidney transplant just three weeks ago. Uh, but he has walked with God, and he has poured his life into the same community, the same people, and passed on the word of God to them for years. And a couple of the guys that he's poured his life into, I'll just show you. Uh, uh, the guy on the left is a guy named Kurt Romig. Kurt uh, is someone that Mark uh, influenced in his faith Kurt is a a language guru. He learned Mandarin in like a year. He wants to influence Muslims for Christ. He wants to plant churches in East Asia. Uh, He has worked for Pioneers Ministry. He's lived among the Uyghur people. I'm sure you're familiar with the Uyghur people, right? He knows the Uyghur language. And uh, uh, he uh, has led Muslims to Christ, and he loves the Word of God and the Christ who's revealed there. This guy right here on the right is is, uh, Courtney Bracken. Uh, Courtney is a businessman in Norman, Oklahoma. He owns his own company. And uh, Mark Robinson, my friend, says that Courtney is the most changed life he's ever seen. Uh, ten years ago, he was uh, addicted to cocaine, uh, and, the go- and, and God got a hold of his life and began to change his life with the gospel. And uh, Mark got to play a role in that, influencing Courtney. And Mark says that Courtney is the greatest lay evangelist in town. Uh, He moves towards people in ways that uh, others don't. He, Courtney, uh, funded by himself a uh, marriage conference a number of years ago uh, that hundreds came to, uh, that his church put on, and I think 55-something people came to Christ that weekend because he loves the Scriptures and he loves the Jesus who's revealed there. Okay? I want to show you one other branch of this little tree because it affects the city of Austin, Affects our church. Uh, this is Ben Hallback. Uh, this is—he's uh, the one on the right. Um, I met Ben. He was one of the first people I met when I came back to Austin in 2003. And I chose this picture because this is Ben Hallback. For those of you who know him, and uh, Ben uh, joined my staff team and uh, got to work with him for about four years. And I would say Ben was just a sponge. He just wanted to learn, uh, but he always wanted to apply what he was learning. He was always pursuing. Uh, guys. And uh, he, he just was, and he's doing that today. He's a businessman down in San Antonio, and he's always kind of creatively trying to come up with ways to influence younger guys for Christ. And uh, one of the guys he pursued and passed on uh, his faith to was James Wood, who is sitting right over here, and, uh, and his wife Claire. And you, you guys, many of you know James. James uh, is the uh, campus crusade director over at UT. And Ben pursued, started pursuing James, his freshman year at UT. And through, ben, through Ben's influence and the influence of others, uh, I think you know James trusted Christ sometime uh, that year and began to grow in his faith, and he began to love the Word of God and the Christ that is revealed in the Word of God. And I would say that James is someone who has this amazing theological mind. If you know that about, you know, if you know James, you know that about him. But he has this heart of a pastor, this heart of a counselor, and he's always pursuing people that he might pass on, what's been entrusted to him. And some of the guys I saw James pursue when they were freshmen at UT uh, are Hunter Stensrude and uh, Clifton Hickman and Nelson Monteith, all of whom are uh, members here at Providence Church. And uh, what's exciting about those three guys to me is I see them now pursuing other guys, passing on a love for God's word and a love for the Christ that is revealed in God's word. And they can come up here and name real stories of guys that they're involved in the lives of. That's how multiplication works. John Mitchell, who's no longer here, somehow influenced these three guys. Now, it wasn't a direct line, because all of those guys and all of us were influenced by other people along the way. But God somehow mysteriously uses his people in very normal ways uh, to multiply God-worshippers on earth. Now, that's his plan. There's no plan B. And uh, so the question for us is, how does this work? What are we supposed to do about it? And I want to show you a little tiny verse that I think captures the essence of multiplication. Uh, many of you know this verse very well. Uh, it's Second Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 2. And Paul is writing uh, to his disciple Timothy, and he says, Timothy, the things you, what you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What you've heard from me, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so just a few observations about this verse, because it, it affects the way we should live our lives as God's people. And the first is this. Multiplication always starts small. Always starts small. This is just a tiny little verse. You kind of miss it in the Scriptures. All it looks like is like a little Bible study. Paul, Timothy... Some other dudes, you know, getting, you know, bagels at Panera Bread and studying the Bible. That's all it looks like. Uh, but what I love about this is that in the, hidden in this small verse is just great potential. It, it, it is, it, it's like the mustard seed. All the potential is in there in the seed. There's four generations in this verse. Um, you have Paul. Who's, who's entrusted something to Timothy and, and saying, hey, pass it on to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, and it begins to multiply. Uh, so multiplication always starts small, but it grows rapidly, grows quickly. Uh, another observation about this verse is that, um, I'm want to go back to the verse? Thanks. Um, is that multiplication um, is personal. It's not programmatic. Uh, The gospel is passed on uh, from person to person. Um, And this makes sense because we have a personal God. The triune God we worship is personal. He's called us into a personal relationship with him. He's healed relationships between people. Uh, At the center of the gospel is a person, the person of Jesus Christ. So it makes sense that the the gospel is passed on in personal uh, ways. Uh, It's passed on in formal ways and informal ways, but it's always Organic. It's, always, it's not mechanical. It's always happening through people, through persons. And I love that about it. Uh, however, even though multiplication happens through personal relationships, uh, multi- multiplication is also very uh, intentional uh, because something specific is being passed on. In other words, these guys aren't just hanging out. Uh, Paul is, is, is saying, hey, entrust something that's been entrusted to you to some other guys. And when, when you use the word entrust, it means something valuable, right? I mean, if I was going to ask, you know, Jake to hold my, my wallet while I was up here, if it had $5 in it, I'd just be like, hey man, can you hold this for me? If it had $10,000 in it, uh, I would look for someone else, right? <laughs> like his wife, Melanie, who's way more reliable. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, if it had a bunch of money in it, though, I would think long and hard about who am I entrusting this to? Because it's got a bunch of money in it. And so the word entrust always points to value. And so what Paul is saying is, hey, I'm giving you a specific body of truth here, and I'm entrusting you with it, and I'm asking you to pass it on to faithful uh, men. Um, so when you think about your life, what are some of the things you know about God or have in your relationship with God that you need to entrust to others, that you need to pass along? will give you just a quick example. The other day, uh, me and uh, my youngest two girls are driving home, Jessica and Sophie. Jessica's 11, Sophie's 6. And Sophie asked the question. She's in the back seat, and she's like, how can God be everywhere at once? And uh, a lot of times I miss these opportunities because I'm really dense, and I'll, I'll just be like, um, I, I don't know. What do you all want for dinner? You know. And, uh, <laughs> but I decided to be really intentional about this, mo- this moment, and I was like, Sophie, that's a great question. How can God be everywhere? Let's talk about that. And I was like, all right, how many gods are there? And uh, they're like, there's one God. And uh, I was like, right, how many persons are in the, thro- in- in the one God? And, uh, and Sophie was kind of stumped. She's six at that point. But Jessica was like, there's three. I was like, that's right. What are their names? And Jessica started naming the three persons, God the Father, and then Sophie jumps in God, uh, God the Son, and then God the Holy Spirit. And I was like, all right, now which one of those three persons of God the one God are most able to be everywhere at the same time. And they are like, God, the spirit. And I was like, why? And they're like, cause he doesn't have a body. And I was like, exactly. And what I want my girls to know is, is that God is with them always and everywhere. And that's just a little gem that I want to entrust to them. So they know it. And then they would entrust it to someone else uh, along the way. Um, Here's the last thing I want you to see about this. Anyone can multiply. I mean, anybody sitting here can multiply. You don't have to be a professional Christian. You don't have to have seminary training. You just have to be faithful with what's been entrusted to you and be willing to pass it along. Uh, One Bible teacher used to say, all you got to do is stay a week ahead of your guys or a week ahead of your girls, right? You learn something one week, just pass it on the next week. Um, If you were a parent... You, you must be doing this. You must be multiplying to your kids because your kids are your primary disciples. They are the primary ways that you will multiply God-worshippers on earth. And so look for ways to pass on truth to them. Uh, the Gospel Story Bible, which we have out here on the, the uh, welcome table, is a great tool just to read stories, especially to younger kids, and pass on truth to them. But the bottom line is anyone can multiply. Uh, All you got to do is take initiative with people, right? And it doesn't have to, it doesn't need to be a teacher, discipler, one up, one down kind of thing, mentor, mentee. It doesn't have to be. It could be just a peer thing. Hey, just get some friends together and begin to entrust to them what's been entrusted to you and sharpen one another. Then bring new people into it. And as as it gets bigger, multiply, okay? Anyone can do it. Here's the simple power of multiplication again. If... You, for the next year, just spent time with only two people, pouring into them, sharing what's been entrusted to you, investing in them, and then at the end of that year, you kept just spending time with those two people, nobody else, uh, and, but challenged each of them to find two people and begin entrusting what's been entrusted to them, uh, and so on and so on. At the end of 20 years, you'd have over one million people just in your little family tree, in your chain there. The power of multiplication is staggering. It's the chessboard. It's the mustard seed. So just to restate what I want you to catch today. God is fiercely committed to multiplying God-worshippers on earth, and he will do it through his people. That's us. Uh, he's asking us to be faithful, to pass the gospel on to others who would entrust it to others, who would entrust it to others, and so on. That's his plan. The command to us is the same as it was to Noah. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with image bearers of the king. Just as we close, I want to give you a little caution. Um, Even though multiplication happens through human beings, uh, multiplication is not a human-centered enterprise. right? God doesn't want us to multiply ourselves so the world can just see more of us. God wants us to multiply ourselves so that the world can see more of Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says this, Christ is the image of God. For we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So God, who's the creator, the one who, who, who... who said, let light shine out of darkness, the king is still committed to multiplying images of himself on earth. And Jesus, according to this passage, is the perfect image of God. The glory of God is seen perfectly in the face of Jesus Christ. So that's the image that God wants to multiply on earth. Here's the deal, and here's where you and I come in. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection on our behalf, he not only forgives our sins, but he begins to renew to restore the image of God in us uh, that was defaced, uh, that was deformed and disfigured by sin, that image. God begins to do a deep work in us in restoring that image. And so, to the extent that we show Jesus to the world, not ourselves, to the extent that we call them to faith in Jesus and not in themselves, we begin to play a part in multiplying a new humanity on earth. It's really great that we could be a part of that. It's only through Jesus that God multiplies true God worshipers on earth. It's a people who are being remade in the perfect image of God that we find in Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.